Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And before we get uh, into today's program, which is the final session of the Terrence McKenna workshop that we've been listening to, I first want to uh, give you a little update on our fund drive. As you know, uh, for a number of reasons, I've decided to no longer accept donations throughout the year. The primary reason being that, uh, well, there are some months during which we receive more donations than we need to pay the expenses associated with these podcasts, and then there are some months when I've got to make up the difference out of my own pocket. I uh, actually only began accepting donations after I'd been doing these podcasts for, well, about three years or so. And at that point, I had to again upgrade my servers in order to uh, keep up with the increased number of downloads each month. But eventually, we had to upgrade to a dedicated server of our own due to the large number of simultaneous connections, uh, since in addition to downloading programs, there is now also a large number of people concurrently uh, streaming a program to their phones. But getting back to my point, it's uh, been kind of stressful wondering from month to month if I was going to have to come up with some more money out of my own pocket. You see, while the number of fellow saloners who have made donations to the salon has actually been increasing, this uh, past year's total of donations was, well, was about half of the previous year's. So I've decided that I'll have a pledge drive each March and try to raise enough funding to make it to the next March. And as of today, March 10th, there have been a total of 36 fellow saloners who have made a donation to uh, help cover our expenses. And because of their generous donations, we already have received enough in donations to ensure the continuation of the salon through the end of this coming May. And uh, this is only the 10th day of our pledge drive, so I uh, have high hopes, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) that uh, we'll reach our goal of another full year of podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. And one last thing that I should mention is uh, in regards to the thumb drives that I'll be sending to those donors who contribute $45 or more. The question that I've been receiving is whether saloners who live outside the U.S. will also receive them. And the answer is yes. No matter where you live, if you make a $45 or more donation, uh, you'll receive a thumb drive with the first 400 podcasts from the salon, along with 100 of my favorite short Terrence McKenna sound bites. And uh, I'll try to remember to tell you about uh, some of them in my next podcast. But for now, let's get on with the show. Uh, as you already know, what we're about to listen to is the final session of a weekend workshop that Terrence McKenna gave in February of 1994. So uh, let's rejoin Terrence and a few of his friends right now. It is the impossible become possible and yet remaining impossible. I had this experience one time of dreaming that I smoked. Um, it was a very, very futuristic, looked like little silver pellets, like... Uh, Star film or some strange metallic thing, a little pipe, but it was like DMT though when I went up on it. It lasted about 45 seconds intense, and then um, I wondered if this is common. Or what, what ha- Do you have any theories about what happened? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. Um, it relates to some of the properties of DMT. I mentioned DMT occurs in human metabolism. It does, and its concentration in cerebrospinal fluid fluctuates on a circadian or daily rhythm. The most intense concentration of DMT is about four in the morning, and this is when the deep REM dreaming is going on. When you give DMT to somebody as an indices or an, as an index of their how loaded they are, what you look at is with them stretched out in front of you, you look at their closed eyes, and if their eyes are darting wildly back and forth under their eyelids, then you assume that they have in fact become successfully intoxicated, because they are then in the realm of the self-transforming elf machines, and they're watching all this stuff. And many people who have smoke DMT report that later they will have a dream 
where a glass pipe will be introduced into the dream, they will smoke it, and this will happen. This is really interesting to me because it argues that the physiological capacity for the DMT flash is present, at least in deep sleep, maybe all the time. It seems to me that an inspired biofeedback program of research ought to be able to teach people how to do that. One thing I've talked to my brother about in terms of orienting the research programs of these pharmaceutical companies is, you know, how about a drug which just allows you to remember your dreams? Hmm. That alone might throw open a whole new world of possibility. <coughs> Kathleen. Yeah, so if you could get in there, uh, we might solve our drug problem. Uh, because, with, because I think that probably every night we go deeper than we can remember. And that the dreams we remember are basically at the surface. And even the deepest dreams we remember are fairly near the surface. But that the dissolution back into some primal swarm state is, is part of the daily cycle. And why, why the top level can't remember the bottom level is a real question about our physiological and psychological Organization. I mean, maybe there is just simply no efficacy to it. Uh, but, uh, yeah. What do you do with the, the brain waves? And uh, if you're down in theta, you can still witness what's going on. But when you go down to delta, it's just a total absorption within the process. You remember it felt nice afterwards, but you don't remember it. Well, what seems to be happening is there's no transcription of short-term memory. DNA, I'm sorry, RNA activation of short-term memory isn't happening. And all of these things have physical mechanisms which could be studied. But, you know, we spend money in unusual ways. I doubt that any drug company would, would put money into a dream recollection drug Drug companies are the most bottom line gang around. Uh, it's a very cutthroat business, and research curves are short because you're in constant competition. Uh, I don't know, but you know, long term research this this could be done. I mean, if we'd spent as much money on this as we spent to dig the hole for the now-canceled super collider, we would probably have the thing in hand. I'm curious about the uh, parallels you drew between the DMT flash and the uh, orgasm, um, or the non-parallels that you said, because you were bad, you said you expressed you were baffled about that. Now, do you, I guess my question is, do you have you experienced or do you know the orgasm to be the potential for a, that kind of a powerful mind uh, consciousness expansion? Or is it just the, what you term as the postcoital, the fog? Or well, the fog comes afterwards. Well, um, yeah. or, orgasm is it's an interesting phenomenon. First of all, it's not necessary. Uh, and it's not expressed in lower animals. Uh, sex, as you descend the animal phylogeny, becomes more and more mechanical, less and less intimate. You know, it, finally it's all about eggs are deposited somewhere and then males come along and fertilize them and there's not even uh, contiguous activity by male and female. So then what is it that as animal complexity increases, there's this concentration on this burst of boundary dissolving pleasure in the central nervous system? I don't exactly understand what the function is there. Uh, I mean, obviously we're all interested in sex, but are we interested in sex because we pursue orgasm and then you know is that the payoff couldn't you build in a more gentle gradient of interest based on biology which must be happening with these other animals uh, 
there's a book to be written about all this. I, I have all the questions. I just don't have any of the answers. I can see that sexuality is related to consciousness and to the psychedelic state. But I can't, and I've thought about it for years and years, and I just haven't gotten anywhere. Um, when you have sex on psychedelics, you know, there's an incredible enhancement and reciprocal feedback into that. But um, I don't know. Kathleen? Yeah, I'm thinking of the tantric practice where, mm. where that energy, that regenerative energy is conserved. So at the moment of orgasm, to concentrate your energy at the base of the spine and let it wash the nervous system internally seems, it seems like an evolutionary... Mm-hmm. Well, I was, I was going to mention that. One of the things that's always puzzled me about Tantra is that if you analyze it, it's a, it's a, frust, it's a frustrating of the biological drive toward ejaculation in the male. How strange, then, that at the top of animal organization there would evolve a physiological response that is contra the biological momentum of the of the species. I mean, you know, a hanging man ejaculates, but a yogin doesn't, apparently. And and so I'm I'm skeptical not of the phenomenon, but of the interpretation of the phenomenon. Actually, there's a good description of of why that's encouraged in a book called The Jewel in the Lotus by Bodhi Abhinasha and Sonyata. And what it is is that it transmutes that energy, whereas the orgasm would send the energy out the bottom of, of the man, that it would come up the spine and accumulate in the, what do you call this, medulla, mm-hmm. and activate the third eye and promote a superconscious state. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the physiological thing. You, you would be questioning the, um, the, the philosophical end of it, but conserving... Sperm is something that's uh, a tradition in many martial arts and other spiritual traditions and does seem to have, uh, in my observation and practice, uh, a, uh, a good effect on spirituality and on states of altered consciousness. But that means that people with vasectomies should be enlightened. No, 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 because it's, 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 it's a physical practice that... You know, that comes about by, by and, and that's a cutting of the circuitry too with the with the vasectomy. Yeah. You know, it, it it's not the sperm; well, it's the energetic. You know, men men have had accidentally dry orgasms that have gotten them to the same place mentally as as, as a wet orgasm. Um, I think it's a mistake to concentrate on the physiological part of it and also the pleasure center part of it and look at it in the wider context of. of where and why and how it's been practiced. And, the, and, and there is a lot there. I've, I've studied that and practiced that a lot. So I, I think it might bear looking at is, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, I agree with no, most of... Off, no you know, but it's not true. <laughs> I agree with most of what you're saying. I'm not so in agreement that, that it's not important to understand the physiology of it. The way to bring these things forward is to get some kind of handle on it so it can be raised off the level of, of metaphor. Um, I, I, and I, and I, I suppose they're trying to do that, but it's freakishly elusive considering how radical the claims are. I'm, I'm very Actually, suspicious. It's not like anything else once you get interested in it. There are a lot of teachers and there is a lot of literature on it. It's, it's, not, it's not freakishly elusive at all. It's just... Well, I mean to demonstrate to, to someone who is not pre-committed to believing it. That's what I mean by elusive. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, um, it's been called the secret teachings for a long time, but, but with what tools and media we have now, these methodologies and explanations are available. Well, yeah, we're in a situation where um, all boundaries between knowledge systems have dissolved in the past hundred years. Like, take something like Dzogchen. You know, when I studied Tibetan, you didn't even mention this till you'd been with them for years. It was inconceivable. Now it's peddled on every street corner, which I think is a good thing. Oh, it's an advanced tantric, shmantric, something or other. It's just I'm using it as an example of the fact that there are esoteric idea systems have all been brought 
together and we're sorting it out. Over the past hundred years, this has been going on. I have been underwhelmed by the accomplishments of Indian spirituality personally, overwhelmed by the accomplishments of Amazonian spirituality. I suspect priestly hierarchies of unspeakable acts and intentions and always try to avoid that. I'm also very suspicious of secrets, I mean, if you tell me one, it's finished as a secret. (laughs) I took a pledge long ago to tell all secrets as quickly as possible. Um, Because I I think that there is... um, that that everybody is a lot stupider than you might think. Uh, That nobody has a leg up on this stuff. Yeah. The only secret in Zogchen is not to tell it to somebody who's not interested. It has something to do with keeping the energy and not going around telling about it. Well, what I found, though, is that... It's a technique. It has nothing to do with a secret. You know, I tell you, okay, don't boil your egg or something. I tell you not to tell anybody. Now, the hard thing is not to tell. It's, you know, the secret is irrelevant. It's only a technique for a student to hold in the energy. That's all. Well, real secrets can't be told, period. So that's not an issue. And then secrets which can be told are not secrets. But secrets are a way of controlling other people. Yeah. What what is your best guess as to what is the outcome of this uh, experience? In other words, are there any conceivable other choices besides... A reversal or going upward? Could we? Could time go backwards? I mean, (laughs) by this process, you mean this historical spin down that we're caught in? Um, Well, uh, there are different ways to think about it, Um, like a whole smorgasbord of ways to think about it. It could be that we are simply in anticipation of our death as a species. This is the downer possibility. That, that what the 20th century is is like a terminal delirium. We are sinking into coma. All philosophies, books, teachings, points of view are now swirling around the deathbed of human culture. You know, we remember the shattered affairs, the failed crusades, the ruined dreams. We're looking back over the wreckage of the last 10,000 years and trying to make peace with it and sinking into coma. Another possibility is, um, you know, I mentioned that the time wave seems curiously appropriate to technology, that what we're calling novelty, the evolution of novelty seems linked to the evolution of technology. Uh, A technology that would fulfill this whole scenario without requiring the intervention of God Almighty or something like that would be time travel. Because if... If it were possible to travel in time, then you would understand what it meant that this linear wave of novelty terminates on December 21st, 2012. It it just literally means that's the day history ends. Because after that day, you have a different kind of time. You have a kind of time that is like space. Notice that when we look at the evolution of life and human culture, it's a conquest of dimensionality. You know, we started as some slime on a rock somewhere, and slowly through the coordination of our senses, our eyes, and then our limbs, we have conquered space. Notice that when you decide to walk over yonder, this is a journey through space that is volitional, But the time is not volitional. No human being has ever traveled an inch in time or a moment in time. We just can't change the rate. We travel in time constantly, but we go at 24 We're in the river. We're in the river, and the river has a speed, and we're carried along. But in principle, if it were possible to travel in time, 
you could create an entirely different kind of sociological domain. And I have talked to the mushroom about this, and it says, you know, that there is that time travel is possible, but only of a certain type. The type that is like this. You can travel back in time, but you cannot travel further back in time than the invention of the first time machine. Because before that, there were no time machines. And if you took a time machine there, you would introduce a paradox. Is memory traveling back in time, like you have a vivid memory of something that happened a while ago. And, you know, isn't, isn't it in a sense a manipulation of time in that way? Well, that's what's called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. I mean, the mind can travel in time, but the mind, time is a domain of non-mental objects. It's a domain of real objects. So the mind traveling through time is fairly ineffectual. If you could actually move matter through time, and there's reason to think you could, then and and if you could travel back in time no further than the first time machine then the moment the first time machine is created and turned on time machines will appear from all points in the future visiting the most interesting place in time which is the beginning of the era of time travel it, it's as though if you had an airplane that you could fly to kitty hawk to December 17th, 1905, to witness the first flight of the Wright Flyer. So, in a sense, what we call a time machine is not a technology at all, and certainly not a technology for individual travel through a temporal medium. What we call a time machine is a kind of switch, which, when pushed, collapses the entire notion of future history down into a single moment. It causes, in a sense, the rest of history to happen instantly. Is, is this time machine mechanical or non-mechanical? Well, it, it's, an, it's a concept at this point. I mean, but I mean if, if there were a time machine, would it be mechanical or non-mechanical? I think you can visualize it any way you like. I mean, it's probably more like a drug than a machine. I guess, well, I guess, well, maybe, maybe that's true too, but I often thought about this time travel thing about uh, the fact that we couldn't fly at least in a physical sense until a few years ago. And I'm thinking that maybe we can't time travel until we get sort of a mechanical prop to help us along at first, but then later on maybe we'll learn how to do it without a mechanical prop. Although we've never learned to fly without mechanical props. And in fact, the more we learn about flying, the less likely that seems. You know. Because it's so easy to fly with a mechanical prop. And 50 years in or 70 years into the history of powered flight, we still haven't a clue as to how you could fly without mechanical uh, augmentation. Yeah. I was thinking that every time you do a, a really deep psychedelic experience, in some ways you time travel back to the first time shamans interacted with, um, with the plant world because you're experiencing basically the same connection that uh, takes you out of present time and into something more ancient and more circular. The other thing that occurred to me that is um, if when we were slime on the rock we were prehistorical, then maybe up to 2012 we become post-historical and maybe what that means is that that we're living life so much that we don't have time to sit down and record it. Mm. Well, post-historical existence would be non-linear. You know, people would live in time the way we now live in space and, and would spread out. Uh, what was the first part of your thing? Um, about, yeah, if you, if you, uh, you're on psychedelics and you, you uh, start... Oh, that, yes, well, that's how I think of psychedelics. I mean, I, when I say boundary dissolution, the real boundaries I'm talking about are the boundaries of dimensionality. That the way a shaman is able to do what shamans do is by transcending Newtonian space and time. That the, the, here's my model of it. <clears throat> the mind is like a crystal growing under pressure. And the pressure is the pressure of Newtonian space-time. And so the crystal grows 
and takes the shape of its confinement. But when you liquefy the crystal matrix with a psychedelic, it has another preferred geometry. And it unfolds into this second geometry, and the, the second and alternative geometry is more hyperspatial. Culturally, our minds are confined by cultural pressure and cultural phase space to uh, reflect cultural concerns. You know, how am I looking? How much money do I have? Are my social relations intact? Is my behavior falling within acceptable? so forth and so on, uh, when you take the psychedelic and you dissolve the social confinement, the intellectual confinement, the ideological confinement, then the mind, is, it's like taking it out of its box and it can configure itself in a more comfortable geometry and it's free. And uh, the reason shamans know what the weather will be, know where the game has gone, know who will recover and who will not recover from serious illness, is because they have a relationship to the future that ordinary people lack. They can see the vectors of possibility and propagate them uh, into the future. In a sense, chess is like good practice for shamanism because good chess players see deeply into the future. That's how you win chess games. Is It's the person who can see the most moves ahead without obfuscation who inevitably wins the game. That's all that chess is about. So it's, uh, and if you've ever played chess on LSD, uh, you, you know that it's... Uh, uh, Ridiculous. <laughs> yes, Cheryl. When you talk about transcending time and, and being liberated from that, is that also liberation from the body? Because so much of our sense of time is wedded to our embodiment. It's physiology. Yeah, I mean, the, this freedom in time usually comes in a state of trance. The I Ching says keeping still. Coma. But even after, trance. Say, say after 2012, when there's this radical transformation of what we know as time, is that also a radical transformation of what we know as body? Well, at other times we've talked about this, you know, there there are factions who want to do away with the body, who believe that somehow in some kind of electrical simulation of the ketamine space, we will all flow like amoeboid energies from one orgasmic nexus to another, and genital consciousness, body image consciousness, all of this will be left behind. I I suppose I should have an opinion about all this, but I really don't. I mean, uh, if, if it feels good, do it, is my motto, and to uh, the choice between extreme artificiality and extreme naturalness. I think we talked about this the first night, didn't we, about the Gnostic choice. On one level, it's a choice about the body. I mean, is the body, you know, the glorious instrument of our interfacing with the miracle of creation, or is the body a bag of rotting guts dragging us down ever deeper into Tartaros? Uh, these are just shifts of perspective and people have vehemently argued both both ways. I like the idea of taking the body with you into cyberspace and creating a virtual body. I mean, obviously, the body is the product of many millions of years of evolution and generally seems well adapted to the mind that inhabits it. It is meaty fleshy and perishable if that could be overcome okay so the perishability the perishability I think is what so it becomes you know what I've said at times in the past is that the task of history is the inversion of the human being our goal is to get the soul outside in three dimensional space and the body folded inside in mental space now we have it all wrong you know the body protrudes into three dimensional space the 
most important organ, the mind, cannot be seen. It's harder to find than the pancreas. Uh, because simply by opening the body and looking around, you can find the pancreas. Opening the body and looking for the mind won't give it to you. It's obviously in another uh, dimension. Many religious traditions have this idea of building what's called a light body uh, and say that, you know, life is a preparation for death. You're building an after-death vehicle. It's a, it's a simulacrum of the living body, but it's made of light and it's under the control of your higher intentionality. Uh, there may be something to this. Certainly, you know, we all do build our images according to how we cut our hair, according to how we dress, what particular reconstructive surgeries we elect to have, so forth and so on. We sculpt uh, and the body. When, this, when the body is made of light, this will become much easier. I mean, you know, rather than a boob job, you can become a canary if you want, or whatever else is your particular, uh, yeah... Does the idea that time is compressing contradict the idea that the universe is expanding scientifically? Well, there's a lot of argument about whether it's expanding or, or contracting. The measurement seems to show that it's incredibly close to the limit case, to, to, the, to the place where you can't tell. I mean, it's either just barely expanding or just barely collapsing. And why it's so close to the limit case isn't clear. Yeah, this contradicts all of that. See, the scientific theory says the universe appeared from nothing for no reason 14 billion years ago. It exploded outward. It's cooling. It's slowing down. Complex processes are appearing. Eventually, it will reach the limits of gravitational expansion if it reaches the limits of gravitational expansion, it will then recollapse. If not, it will just go forward f unto entropic heat death. The model that I'm proposing is a little different. It says that the big singularity lies not at the beginning of the universe, but at the end. So I call it not the Big Bang, but the Big Surprise. What's happening is the process is complexifying. The scientists want to say that the entire universe burst from a point smaller than the electron for no reason. As I said yesterday, this is the limit case for credulity. You know, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. I, I had that feeling. I, you know, I'm not a physicist, you know, but I had the feeling. It sounds a little strange. Yeah, how is that different from, and God said, let there be light? It's not different at all. It just uses a personal pronoun in one case and not in the other. But I think that there are singularities, but that they arise in complexity. And that history is the shock wave of the approach of an animal species towards such a singularity. In other words, that when monkeys walk toward the mystery, they begin spouting poetry, solving quadratic equations, and manufacturing instruments to measure the charge of the electron. It's a sign that you're getting close to uh, the source of gnosis that the noetic point source radiates understanding with such an intensity that the closer you approach it, the more you understand. And the closer a species approaches it, the more it manifests cognitive activity. So we dance, we paint, we sculpt, we poeticize, we construct complex architectonic structures because we are close to the source. And the way we are narrowing distance between ourselves and the source is by moving toward it through time. It exists at a point in time. And we are slowly wandering across the epigenetic landscape of becoming, and it's a steep hill. So we are wandering down into this basin of attraction, unconsciously being drawn closer and closer to the dwell point. And now... The walls are so steep, the momentum so great, that there's no doubt where we're headed. We're headed toward the point of, uh, of maximum equilibrium within the system. Yeah, somebody over here, yeah. 
A few minutes ago you were kind of laughing that it would be ridiculous playing chess under LSD. And I was wondering why would it be ridiculous or what would happen? Well, the thing is, if you, it depends on how seriously you took chess. If you took chess very seriously, it would be perfectly possible to do it. Like everything else under LSD, the implications have to be kept <laughs> under control. So if you could just look at the chess board and see it as a chess problem, you could probably play chess. But unfortunately, everything will become symbolic of other things. And, and you will, uh, you know, it's very hard to keep your eye on the ball. You would have to have incredible powers of concentration. You would have to really love chess. Some people can do this. I mean, I know people who cross-country ski on psilocybin. I find that unimaginable. I mean, I can't cross-country open my eyes on psilocybin. <laughs> so... Uh, Something? Yeah, Something? I was going to say that's in chess is that what disappeared was the complete um, lack of desire to beat the, the other person. <laughs> yes, I think that the killer instinct declines, but if you were looking at it as how deeply can I see into it, it's good probably, probably the way to take acid and play chess is with a computer then you don't get into the personal issues of, you know, what is it on the other side of the board? What I find with psychedelics is it's always people that are the most confounding. I mean, people as nexi of complexity are orders of magnitude more complex than anything else in the universe and can always throw you for a loop if you're... I mean, always they can throw you for a loop. There's no if you're anything. Uh, yeah. This is totally off the wall. Have you ever pointed a, a video camera at a TV screen and observed uh, what happens? Sure, that's called a hop bifurcation. That's the standard thing in in chaos theory to demonstrate. That's just a feedback loop. That's that's the equivalent of audio feedback, but that's visual feedback. Well, the, if you're making a metaphor to the act of self-reflection, yeah, I mean... It seems like you're seeing into the um, particle matter or something, forms be, like getting deep, deep between the molecules. It's very strange. And also, if you, if you, if you mess around with the, the contrast and the, uh, the light button at the same time, and you can just get it just right so it's pointing in the middle of the screen, put it on a tripod and stuff, and then mess around. And you can actually video it, too. You can slot an empty video and things. You can come up with them. I mean, if they could make a light show out of that. Well, Ralph Abraham, when he was studying uh, dynamical systems, built a device which he called a macroscope. And what it was was it was two sheets of glass with a liquid, like gel or something, in between. And there was a frequency knob and an amplitude knob. And you... you play with these two knobs, you illuminate the glass plate with Schlieren optics, which is a polarized light system, and project it on a screen, and you discover, you know, that there's this pulsating pattern, but as you steer with the amplitude and frequency knobs, you can stabilize the pattern. But what's interesting is when you try to, and when you leave the pattern, and try to steer back to it with the same series of moves again, you can't find your way back by repeating your previous action in reverse because it's a dynamical uh, system. These are, this is what chaos theory, complexity theory, dynamics is studying now. Very new mathematical tools are emerging for studying complex systems. And this is precisely what we need. You see, all of modern science up until, let's say, 1980 was done as an extension of Greek mathematics. Mm -hmm. you, you had the perfect Aristotelian solids, then you had the multivariable equations that come out of algebra as it evolves into calculus. I was interesting that it didn't have, couldn't be computed exactly. Right. Well, there were all kinds of problems in nature and mathematics that were called pathological, or a less dramatic term is uh, incommensurate, meaning that 
you could tell that there was a mathematical solution, but nobody knew how to carry out the millions of operations necessary to do that. Well, now with computers, computers are making a revolution in mathematics that's very unwelcome among some mathematicians. Because, uh, you know, with computers you can perform hundreds of millions of iterative operations a second. The computer becomes an eye into domains of complexity that previously could only be vaguely indicated. As an example, fractals. Fractals have been known since the late 19th century. They were not called fractals. They were called pathological curves. Uh, the snowflake curve, the piano curve, the anti-snowflake curve, these things were known, but you could only calculate them to the third and fourth stage of expression. Now, with a little program on a PC like Sketch, you can calculate the eighth, ninth, and tenth levels of these complex objects, and it only takes it 10 or 15 minutes to draw them for you. So this is, you know, using technology... You specifically technologies which mirror mental functioning to push, push us deeper and deeper into the mathematical realm. Yeah. Uh, Cornelius Cardew, and he came up with this uh, one composition called Paragraphs, and it was uh, in, John, in a John Cage style. It was uh, not musical notations. It had a series of written instructions, and there would be 40 people that would perform it anyway. Say, for instance, um, an instruction would be sing the word if in any note that you hear personally for the for the um, duration of a breath. And so there would be 40 people that would go if. And, and so what they would do is he had, at that time, had all over um, the country or uh, Europe or America and stuff, all these different groups of 40 people doing it. And then the... Um, the variables would be that there would be five trained musicians and 35 people that just walked into the room and read the instructions. Anyway, each, uh, and, and the piece was maybe 20 minutes long with a series of instructions. And there was, uh, when you played all of these back-to-back, there was rarely a difference in the way it would sounded and performed. So people would have a tendency to hit A, for instance, you know, or go... You mean it reveals an underlying organization that is not known to be there. Well, th- this, this is how the world is put together, it turns out. I mean, a story that I occasionally tell that illustrated for me how this works that was very interesting was I was on a beach a few years ago in Southern California, a, a very long beach with no people on it, and uh, I came upon a black round rock that was just deposited there. And I noticed uh, this, this rock and I uh, kept walking along the beach and then I came to another black rock, exactly like the first one, like about 500 yards further on. And I had, for some reason probably because I was loaded on mushrooms, I had the prescience of mind to go back to the first rock I'd encountered and count off the steps between the two rocks. It was like 650 steps. So when I got to the second rock, I began walking, continuing down the beach, and I counted off 648 more steps, and there was a third black rock as I knew there would be. <laughs> and, and so you see what's happening here is that you have a huge bay with this endless beach. Some kind of incredibly complicated equation is being continuously run on the bay as computer. And every 648 to 656 steps... It's, depo- it's solving this equation by depositing a small black rock on the beach. Well, now, if I had had a naive person around, I could have predicted that we would encounter the third black rock, and then they would have deified me or offered sacrifice or something at this proof of a prescient knowledge of the future. But it wasn't prescient knowledge of the future. It was knowledge of how fractals work in space and time. 
And, you know, if you, if you get this attitude, it's a firm basis for a kind of warm-hearted cynicism so that when people do something wonderful or terrible to you, that has been done before to you over and over again, instead of expressing outrage and amazement, you just notice that, aha, it's happening again, uh, as it has in the past, as it surely will in the future. This is how Finnegan's Wake is written, you know. It's just within the great fall are suspended many little falls and spread through that are many tiny falls and infinite regress of repetitious pattern. This is how the world actually works, yeah. Science would have uh, said it uh, was incorrect because there was a difference of uh, three or four paces between the, diff- the, the distances between the rock, therefore it was, nothing was proved. Well, that's Greek science that is trying for a kind of exactitude. But it turns out, you know, nature is not deterministic. There are always... That's why, you know, they they used to have the idea that you could run the universe backwards and that all the particles would eventually rearrange themselves as they were in the original uh, situation. This is a... Yeah, that you could run it back to the Big Bang. But this is an incredibly naive and simple-minded understanding of how the laws of nature work because the laws of nature are not absolutely determined. I mean, you can run time backward and it will sort of return to where it started from. But, you know, Columbus will not sail the ocean blue in 1492. It doesn't work like that. Uh, Once something has undergone the formality of occurring, it it is uh, never to be repeated. It's unique. I mean, that's what's happening is there's this moving wave front of the class of the possible that slowly, at the point of interest called the now, translates itself into what has actually occurred. But, you know, just now you said there's a... You know, the way things are, it's, it's a repetition. It's like, you know, uh, the fractals, you know, like uh, if it happens to you again and again, and now you say nothing is ever repeated. So, you know, there's, on one level there's a contradiction, on another level there is some, I, I don't understand. Well, in a fractal, see, there is no contradiction because you can, these two statements are both true. Yeah. Here's the first statement. Every day is like every other day. That's generally true. Here's the second statement. But occasionally, amazing things happen. That's also true. You have to round the corn, one of the big corners in the pattern. So every, every day is like every other day. Every century is rather like every other century, and every million years is sort of like the million years that preceded it. But then at the fine scale, there are incredible surprises. So everything oscillates between its sameness and its uniqueness. And, and it is c- uh, co-temporaneously both unique and part of a universal plenum. I mean, this gets close to some kind of Buddhist idea. Uh, uniqueness is the thing that, that hasn't received enough attention. That's why, you know, I'm a Whiteheadian, because I think Whitehead dealt with uniqueness, with more care and attention than, uh, than anybody else has. Yeah? You have to follow this path, the student, whoever's the sucker. Take sucker that first step and you're Well, yeah. Enter into this Boolean algebra, which is both and logic, wasn't invented until the late 19th century. So there was this long, long period of where you had to make this choice. This is, again, what's called the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. The idea that ideas are things, therefore they have to be A or B. You know, they don't have to be A or B. They, they can exist in a both-and uh, situation. Yes, I had a professor who seriously advocated. He said, you want to know when the world went wrong? It went wrong when the Greeks stopped being fishermen and pulled their boats up on the sand and started talking philosophy. And the, <laughs> and the road to hell was paved broad and straight from that, uh, that point on. Yeah, in alchemical thinking, which existed as a, as a, like a countercultural alternative to all this Aristotelianism, mm-hmm. there is what's called the coincidentia positorum. 
And I found this very useful. It's a psychedelic idea, a Jungian idea, an occult idea. And it's the idea that you have to practice thinking, uh, holding two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time. Uh, this is a way to snare the mind and it's truer to reality. Mm. So, like, it's also a great way to name books, by the way. I mean, if you ever have to title a book, this was advice from a New York editor. He said, you have to have a title that contains a contradiction. True True hallucinations. (laughs) Or the invisible landscape. Or the archaic revival. Or Black Neon, a book I haven't written, but that will be my foray into pornography, uh, if I haven't made it already. Yes, this is the way to do it, uh, to oppose these things. That's called a coincidentia positorum. That's what life is really like. You know, I really love you. And if you really knew me, you would know that I don't. And, uh, you know, I, I, you can depend on me for the next 30 seconds, and so forth and so on. I mean, this is what life is really like, and people hate it, because they want to extrude this residuum of the uncertain. They say, you know, I want you to be dependable, or I want you to be X, Y, or Z, when in fact everything is shifting and changing. Um, I see I'm over time. I just want to, this leads me to my final point, which is, Uh, First, a question I'd like you to think about. We can't discuss it here. But it's, uh, are we, psychedelic people, different from anybody else? Uh, We make the claim that we have found the answer, that it is suppressed by an ignorant and intolerant world. We sound very much like the kind of whining that goes on among Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody else who has some (laughs) screwball theory that if the world would but listen, then everything would be fine. So I'm very interested in this question, you know, are we morally superior, are we intellectually superior, do we treat our children better, psychedelic users, that's what I'm talking about, Uh, because that's the bottom line, is, you know, does it inspire better lives, more love, greater care, that's the question, and then the last thought I want to leave you with, which is a sort of coincidentia positorum thought, because it will bum some and exalt others, is the one thing that I've learned from psychedelics that seems secure over all the decades and the, you know, embracing one idea, one ideology after another. The one thing that seems secure is a, a truth that is hard to hear in the context of a dominator culture with a obsession with the material world and and that truth is that nothing lasts nothing (laughs) lasts you know your enemies will fade your friends will fade your fortune your poverty your disappointments your dreams everything is in the process of changing into something else so your agony is about to be assuaged on the other hand your happiness is about to be destroyed so the the obligation that comes out of this realization is an obligation to the the immediate moment to this thing that i've been calling the felt moment of immediate experience. It isn't who you were or what you were or who you will be or what you will be. It's the felt moment of immediate experience. And this has been robbed from us by media and by our tendency to denigrate ourselves, to see the world in terms of the great ones, not here, whoever they are, Aristotle, Madonna, Jesus, whatever your particular bent is. Uh, The overcoming of neurosis, of unhappiness, of toxic lifestyles is uh, the felt presence of immediate experience in the body, in the moment. And, you know, psychedelics, sexuality, gastronomy, sport, dance, these are the things which put you in the felt 
presence of the moment. And that's really all you ever possess. Your memories are eroding away. The futures you anticipate will mostly not come to pass. And the real uh, richness is in the moment. And it's not necessarily some kind of be-here-now, feel-good thing, because it doesn't always feel good. But it always feels It is a domain of feeling. It's primary. Language is not primary. Ideology is not primary. The propagation of future and past vectors is not primary. What's primary is the felt presence of experience, and that is the source of love, and that is the source of community. And if you get that together as people always have in the past, or we wouldn't be here, they to some degree succeeded with this enterprise. If you get that together, everything will flow with considerably less resistance, and you will find it in yourself, I think, uh, to have enough inner equanimity and peace of mind to triumph over whatever life throws your way, whether it be, you know, poverty, obscurity, wealth, fame, power, or the absence of power. All of these things should be dealt with with equanimity because all are ephemeral. All are in the very act of coming into existence, uh, passing away. Pantit Rea, Heraclitus said, all flows. Everything is both simultaneously coming into existence and dissolving away to make room for something else. Clutching doesn't work. Fearing doesn't work. The only thing which works is a kind of affirmation to the process. And uh, psychedelics, to my mind, are the medicine that clears away the obstructions that uh, make it difficult for us to touch this existential core. And that's what life is all about. And that's the end of the weekend. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Clutching and fearing do not work, so says the Bard McKenna. And I, for one, am inclined to agree with him. Trust the process, the flow of life, without clinging to the present or reaching back for the past. Let go of the rock that you're clinging to and go with the flow. Of course, uh, (laughs) there's always the little problem of uh, what seems to be all of those rapids along the way that uh, make going with the flow more difficult than uh, at other times when the current is more gentle. So I hope that at this particular moment it finds you in a smooth flowing current. And even though that infamous 2012 date is no longer the hot topic that it once was, I nonetheless decided to uh, leave in the brief discussion of that event, as it is one of, uh, I think, uh, Terence's most clear explanations of what he thought would uh, happen after that date. It's uh, not something that I feel like continuing to discuss myself, however, uh, but from the standpoint of uh, better understanding the workings of Terence's mind in regards to 2012, I, uh, I think that it was quite informative. Also, I hope that you enjoyed the uh, (laughs) brief discussion about playing chess while under the influence of LSD. If you recall that uh, famous video of the uh, British Army troop that was attempting to conduct a field exercise while under the influence of acid, well then, like me, I'm sure that you can extrapolate a similarly funny scene of two chess players on acid. Of course, uh, you've got to be kind of geeky to see the deep humor in that scene, I guess. Now, uh, I've just got a couple of brief announcements before I go, and uh, the first one concerns fellow saloner, donor, and Palenque Norte speaker, Shona Holm. Ever since I first podcast her Palenque Norte talk from two years ago, I've been receiving requests for more Shona. Well, I've got good news for you. There's a recording available now of a conversation that she had recently with Niall Murphy who is uh, better known as Opaque Lens of Shamanic Freedom Radio in the UK. I haven't had a chance to uh, listen to this myself yet, but that's the first thing that I'm going to do as soon as I uh, get this podcast posted. Uh, Here's a bit of what Shona told me about this conversation. Niall and I discussed the role of the shaman as individual 
and we touch on, in quotes, instant coffee, unquote, instant coffee Western culture, the importance of initiation, a bit about law, and much more. So uh, I'll post a link to this talk in today's program notes, which uh, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and I'll also put that link on the page with Shona's Planque Norte podcast, which is uh, number 360. And uh, in case you haven't had a chance to listen to that talk yet, uh, well, you may want to do so right now. I'm going to uh, close after I sign off by replaying that interesting little question that uh, Terrence asked in this talk. It's actually one of the most important questions that our community can ask of itself, and it is something that I plan on discussing in one of the live sessions of the Psychedelic Salon that I'll be hosting at the end of next month at the Arizona Wild Wild West Festival. This will be the first and uh, most likely the only time that there's going to be a live session of the Salon, so I hope that you can make it and uh, participate in this event which uh, I should note also, (laughs) mainly features a lot of really good music, not just talk. And I'll put a link to that uh, festival in the program notes for this podcast. Again, uh, you can get to it via psychedelicsalon.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. First, a question I'd like you to think about. We can't discuss it here, but it's, uh, are we psychedelic people different from anybody else. Uh, We make the claim that we have found the answer, that it is suppressed by an ignorant and intolerant world. We sound very much like the kind of whining that goes on among Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody else who has some (laughs) screwball theory that if the world would but listen, then everything would be fine. So I'm very interested in this question, you know, are we morally superior, are we intellectually superior, do we treat our children better, psychedelic users, that's what I'm talking about, Uh, because that's the bottom line, is, you know, does it inspire better lives, more love, greater care, that's the question.